When thousands of objects were gathered into museums at the end of the 19th century, it was argued that they could provide object lessons in human culture. The object lesson was thought of as a tangible example of an abstract principle, but was also supposed to teach people how to act by showing the details of a bad situation. What lessons do African objects have for us in the 21st century? What can we learn from them about Africa's long relationship with Europe? What can they teach us about being and becoming human? These are some of the questions we want to return to in our conversations with scholars, curators, artists and activists. African Object Lessons is an opportunity to go deeper, to hear different perspectives and to think in, about and beyond the museum. My name is Benjamina Efodaze and I'm a Collections Assistant in Anthropology at MAA Cambridge. My name is Chris Wingfield and I'm an Associate Professor in the Arts of Africa at the Sainsbury Research Unit in Norwich. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, Benjamina. It's great to be doing this. Yes, it's great um, to have an opportunity to sort of think through uh, objects and, and what they mean to us in context and, uh, and within the space of the museum and, and, you know, what are the issues that uh, they allow us to, to bring out. Yeah, I mean, I'm really looking forward to some of the conversations that we're going to have, and and it's a really great opportunity to to bring a number of different people who are kind of working in this space together and to hear from them. Um, and I'm really excited about kind of hosting the podcast with you because I think we have a lot of kind of parallel interests and overlapping interests that um, you know that come out of our experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I think, first of all, uh, our uh, research field, uh, I mean, I'm interested in uh, missionary collections and how religion uh, shape our understanding uh, of cultures and um, how the sort of uh, pre-existing knowledge of divinity uh, sort of has facilitated uh, the sort of spread of Christianity um, in, in West African uh, regions, uh, such as Nigeria. Um, and yours is a bit further than my region, but uh, within the same sort of um, ideas. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've been working for a little while on um, Southern Africa and thinking about kind of um, early missionaries, the collecting that they did and the museums that they built and some of the ways in which that kind of fed into the anthropology museum of the late 19th century and into the 20th century. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've kind of been thinking to some extent about the European perspective, but more recently really about, you know, what happened in Southern Africa, in Botswana and South Africa that enabled those kind of collections to be formed. And I think also thinking about our, our experience, uh, sort of uh, beyond the, the, the academia space, um, being bo both of us being born in, uh, in Africa, uh, me in West Africa and yourself in Southern Africa, um, I guess it helps us uh, think within a specific framework when we are looking at uh, the different narratives that uh, these objects uh, in museums, uh, within the space of museums, you know, what they, they provide us uh, and the ideas that they allow us to think about. I mean, one of the one of the interesting ideas that one of the people we're going to talk to, Paul Bassi, has, has, has played around with is the idea of the object diaspora. 
um, and the fact that there are all these objects which are kind of in the in these museums spread around a diaspora um, and I guess you know I had an experience as you know as an eight-year-old of leaving South Africa um, you know relocating to Europe kind of adjusting to that um, and and feeling to some extent you know part of a kind of a diaspora so I think for me the the objects and museums have always felt similarly kind of trapped in two worlds yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's so interesting that you mentioned you you left um, South Africa in, when you were eight years old, because I left Ghana when I was eight years old um, to move to Italy. Um, and, you know, the the presence of, of uh, African material culture um, in Europe, actually, is, is such an interesting experience for me, because I often think about how I have encountered uh, my own culture uh, through, you know, this experience of the diaspora. Uh, I often wonder if um, the interests that I have, if they would have manifested in the same way had I, uh, you know, lived and grown up in, in Ghana. Um, and so there are similarities in terms of the trajectories of, uh, of some of the objects that we will talk about and, um, you know, our own life uh, trajectory. Yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, I don't know, you know, but for me, you know, one of the confronting things about that move was encountering the stereotypes that people had about Africa um, in, in Europe. So I think in my first week at school, you know, they'd heard about this boy joining the school from Africa. And, you know, one, one of my classmates said, you know, well, why aren't you black? And I said, well, you know, not, not everyone in South Africa is black. And then, you know, they, they would say, you know, but did you have lions walking around in the street? And you know, I said, well, you know, in game reserves there were, but I, you know, I just really remember that really being struck by this idea that people had of Africa, which from my experience of something was completely different. Yes, and um, in, in Italy, uh, there were often um, these same uh, questions that people would have for me. And I often wondered, you know, if we were living on the same planet and sort of uh, moving around the same world. Um, because there was such um, such a sort of uh, distance um, between the imagery that people had in their mind through, uh, you know, media such as TV uh, and, you know, uh, magazines um, and the reality. Uh, I mean, when I was in Ghana, I lived in a city. Um, I lived, you know, in a in a regular house. <laughs> I've never lived in a in a mud house. Um, and you know, it's it's so interesting to me that um, animals like uh, elephants and, and and monkeys are animals that I've only seen in in zoos and not sort of wandering around, <laughs> wandering around town. Yet there is this sort of um, uh, thinking and this uh, this imagery in people's. Uh, collective understanding that this is this is the reality in Africa so um it was I think my my own experience was was also an opportunity for people to actually um be present in the world and understand that there are different uh there are differences yet you know we we live in the same in the same space yeah I mean that's 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 kind of really interesting and I guess you know there's an irony in a way in that I think, you know, the museum and perhaps particularly the ethnographic museum is one of the places where those images and those um, stereotypes were constructed. And yet we've both found ourselves kind of working in those spaces. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. It's, 
it's um it's a relationship of uh gratitude but also conflict uh oftentimes um earlier i mentioned how um i encountered uh my own culture uh within the space of of the museum uh, and studying um heritage and culture um as a diasporan uh, because my culture wasn't present for me to sort of experience it firsthand and even you know the part of my culture that was present so you know my parents uh, because my extended family wasn't wasn't here with us um their experience was filtered through 30 years of living uh in europe um and so to the extent that they could provide us uh you know food and 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 language and and sort of a sense of 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 culture through performance of of different um different activities um it was always filtered and so it was when i i entered this sort of space of of learning about about my culture in within the academic setting um that sort of um pushed me to to go for example to Ghana and live there uh for 10 months to to experience what it means to to be an adult in uh in a context like Ghana um and so yeah so that's why i often wonder if these interests uh that i have if they would have manifested in the same way had i grown up uh in a space that had my culture readily available to me yeah so so did you um I mean did you travel back with family before that you know you said you left when no. you were 8 or did you spend the rest of your childhood in Europe Yes I did spend the rest of my childhood in in Europe the the first time I I went back to Ghana uh was when I was um when I was 21 um so I spent from from 8 years old to 21 years old um I was in Europe um in Italy and then in the UK um so you know I there is literal that i remember from from that time um and so that's why it was important for me once once i found myself so being in in this space uh studying um uh you know heritage and culture and, and how cultures is is presented to to the world uh through uh, museums um it was important for me to to be in ghana and sort of experience what it means to to be again in within that context that's really interesting i think for me you know at university i i really wanted to do research that was in southern africa and and spent time you know back there in that sense but it was strange in a way because i think you know i, I having having kind of grown up in britain i think you know one of the things that i was able to do with a name that i have and the skin that i have is to pass and and you know i could pass as english um and yet within a family setting we had a sense of you know the english were were slightly different from us and there was something you know and there was a conversation a commentary about what what this english was and what that meant um and yet i had a had a lot of choice really about whether and when i wanted to reveal that you know i wasn't and you know and i also have irish ancestry and have an irish passport which is a kind of interesting um third space there and one of the things that people would you know would sometimes say to me was you know well, what do you really feel what what are you and and that's question always stumped me because i you know having spent so much of my life here you know obviously this is kind of home um but then there's other parts of that identity and that history and family history which are really important and i and you know 
I think at different points in my life, I probably felt different things, but actually going back and spending time in, you know, in Southern Africa is often when I feel most English. That is so interesting. And I think every uh, third culture kid uh, will probably have a different version of, of what you just laid out um, because you can't be just one thing. And of course, because of that, you are going to feel differently in different spaces, even in those spaces where you feel like you should be what you you think you are. And so, for example, you know, when I was in Ghana, I I think I'm Ghanaian. I know I'm Ghanaian. My name, my surname, uh, is the most fancy surname, the most basic fancy surname you will ever find. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yet, because of the way I speak, because of the way I look, uh, so for example, the way my hair looks, um, there was uh, a difficulty in sort of accepting that that identity I was presenting, and I had to be okay with it um, because it comes from this uh, multifaceted space identity uh, that I have occupied. I mean, my sense is that more and more people are are, are occupying those kinds of spaces. But one of the things about museums that I've tried to write about a bit in the past is the way in which, you know, the, some of those complexities get ironed out, um, you know, and, and, and with objects. And so there's a way in which labels, descriptions of things, you know, they pin things down to one place, one identity, um, you know, a bit like the way in which a passport, you know, some people have more than one passport, but, but still there's a sense in which you have this kind of singular kind of identity in the institution of the museum um, and I think I, I kind of really I, I struggle with that because I feel like you know there are these there are these museums there are these objects in museums um, that have had these kind of complicated international diasporic existences and yet we sort of say this is this is this one thing that they are. We have limited physical um, label space limited word count um, there are so knowledges have been structured in a way that are sort of limited. They, they must start and they must end um, with a specific notion. Um, and that's what also an audience would expect. Um, and, and so I am actually quite excited about the opportunity to, to have a space like this uh, podcast and about the sort of rise in the, in the digital uh, sort of space, which uh, fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> uh, we, we find ourselves occupying uh, because they, they really help us expand um, the conversation and expand the, the knowledges that we are, we are exposed to, that we are able to present and that we are able to also take in. Um, you know, I often think looking at uh, ethnographic material, um, whose voices are we sort of highlighting in these sort of limited um, characters of museum labels? Uh, is it, is it the, the voice of the elder or is it the voice of the young person? Is it the voice of, of the, the, the person that produced or the community that produced um, the item we are looking at? Or is it the voice of the person trying to make sense of, of what we are looking at? And, and I think 
I mean, I feel like this is a is a particular moment. I mean, you talk about us maybe being unwillingly in this space, and obviously we're you know a year in or a bit over a year into this pandemic. Um, I mean, we we you know we're spending so much of our lives in the digital space. You know, we're doing this podcast as a kind of forty minute um, Zoom call, and Zoom has just become, I think, so many of our interactions. But for a while, museums have been having more and more of their kind of visitors, you know, online rather than in the physical space. Um, and I think museums have sometimes been slow to catch up with that, but I think there's a whole set of possibilities that the new technologies offer, you know, and, and podcasting is obviously one of them, but, um, but I think it's kind of interesting to really kind of push that and play with that because we, we're often in museums engaging with this very old 19th century technology of the glass case and the type label. Um, but, you know, we, we, you know, whether, as you say, whether, you, whether we like it or not, we're not really living our lives like that anymore. We have to change uh, and adapt uh, to the ways people uh, want to learn. Um, not everyone wants to, you know, take a day trip and go into a museum. Um, some people want to see interactive things. Uh, they want to look at uh, visual uh, items or audio items. Um, there is, uh, there's a proverb in Akan. It says, Imbredane uh, so, you know, when time, when the time is changing, you are also changing. Um, and so this idea of change has to be part of, you know, our everyday practice. We've, we've gone for a logo for the podcast as well, which I think has also you've drawn on your, your kind of Akan roots there. And I wondered if you wanted to say something about, about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the logo uh, that we went for, so you know, beyond the the, the writing, there is um, a symbol from the Adinkra uh, series of symbols, uh, which is uh, Nyan Sapo, um, so the knot of knowledge. Uh, so this idea of um, of knowledge being uh, embedded, and and you know, the idea of knowledge sharing and collaborative knowledge uh, and knowledge that complements uh, one another. Um, and so, yeah, I was, when, when we thought of, of this podcast, that was the first, uh, the first symbol that came to mind. I mean, it looks great, but I think the fact that it has, you know, the kind of a, those additional significances is, is, is really good. And, and I really like the idea of the knot and I think, you know, we, it does feel, it does feel like we're in a knotty space and a knotty time and trying to kind of unpick those knots and understand them is partly about kind of engaging those histories, I suppose, but also, you know, the knots that bind us in the present. So we've got, we've got various people lined up that we want to talk to. Um, but in the first instance, um, we, there's a project that we've both been kind of involved in, which is re-entanglement, um, which is going to uh, result in, a, in, a, in an exhibition at MAA in Cambridge. Um, and, and Paul Basu, who's the kind of originator of that project, is going to be our kind of first guest. Yes, uh, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation uh, with him because I think um, it really um, shows in practice some of the things we are talking about uh, and um, really through the, 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 the collection that, um, that he's working on. Yeah, I mean, that, that collection is an amazing collection. That it's, you know, it's so rich. There are so many thousands of photographs and objects and things. But, you know, for a hundred years, you know, many of those haven't really had much attention. They've been in, in, in storage. 
Um, and so there's a really interesting thing that happens when you kind of take them out and as they've tried to do in that project, take them to the places where photographs were made, sound recordings were made and, and, and kind of re-engage with the present. Um, yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah, and um, I think in many ways, so um, the, the anthropologists, the colonial anthropologists who, who gathered this collection, Northcott Thomas, in many ways, he was doing a lot of the things that uh, museums have been trying to to figure out in terms of merging the sort of the visual with the uh, audio, you know. Um, and it's it's so interesting. This happened hundred years ago, and we are here today thinking about how do we create interactive and uh, multisensorial experiences um, for people in the in the museum space. I mean, one of the things, as, as you mentioned, the, the collection is mostly associated with this colonial government anthropologist, Northcote Thomas. Um, and, you know, 100 years ago is, you know, the kind of height of the colonial period, I suppose, in West Africa. Um, and a lot of things in museums are associated with colonialism, colonial period and so on. Um, and I think that's obviously a very contested kind of, you know, how people relate to that colonial past now, both in, in Europe and West Africa, is something that's a you know, real focus of, of, of contestation and debate. Um. Yes, and I, I'm looking forward to the type of conversations that um, we will have with the public, um, both the sort of, um, uh, you know, Cambridge, sort of local, but also people from uh, across the UK um, and also people um, who uh, belong to uh, the communities from which uh, these uh, these items were, 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 you know, taken or, or, or commissioned or bought from. I mean, I, I kind of increasingly feel that there's there's something going on here when engaging with these archival materials, which is about ancestors and ancestorhood. Now, in the, in the kind of the tradition of anthropology in Southern Africa, you know, ancestors have kind of loomed large in the way in which people relate to those ancestors. But, you know, in the conversations over the last year, particularly since, um, you know, the Colston statue came down in Bristol, I've really felt that there's, there's something there about British ancestors and colonial ancestors and how people in the present kind of relate to that. Um, and, you know, I have I have colonial ancestors, you know, by the reason my family ended up in South Africa is through the, you know, the forces of colonialism and so on. And I think there's an interesting kind of engagement, you know. And it's, it's also a very um, sort of complicated um, history in terms of how we, we sort of engage with these objects because of the context from which they come from. I wonder, for example, in this collection, you know, there are items that uh, not caught Thomas commissioned uh, purposefully for, um, you know, for his uh, colonial uh, enterprise of gathering objects and, and, you know, bringing them to the ethnographic museum uh, in Britain. Um, and so I'm interested to understand what would be the response to that um, when we engage with the public. Uh, do you feel any differently about items that were commissioned uh, in a colonial context? Um, what is your sort of posture when it comes to uh, ideas about uh, restitution and repatriation? Are these uh, items in the same category? What, what are we thinking? And so I'm really uh, looking forward to 
to engage with those uh, those ideas. And 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 yeah, I mean, I guess you know part of the argument is about power differential and and the idea that you know during a colonial period, you know Northcote Thomas you know, had the power of the state, the power of the empire behind him. And although he may have been paying people for things, you know, it wasn't a kind of an equal an equal exchange. And I think some people have argued that on that basis, you know, things you, you can't you can't kind of equate that with a with a straightforward. Um, but but you know again that that implies that people had no agency at all. And it implies that people weren't able to kind of weigh up, you know, the options they had open to them and to make a decision you know, based on that. Um, so I, again, I find myself in this position where I can see with these two arguments. And, and I think, you know, one of the things we flagged is, you know, the long history of Africa's relationship with Europe. And I guess, you know, one of the things to really think through that hopefully we can think through is the way in which that history changed, you know, at different, different periods of time. Um, and, you know, for instance, there is this kind of, this high imperialism of, you know, the 1880s to the 1920s, um, which was, you know, about, you know, the Berlin Conference and, and the partition of Africa and, and, and a very kind of military occupation. But there was a period before that, um, you know, when missionaries and other people were, were engaged and around in much less powerful positions. And there was, and there's obviously been a period after that. We've got to, we've got to make space. We've got to make space for these conversations. And that, that's what, I mean, ideally the podcast is all about. I was listening to, um, Ashilin Bembe recently, um, who was talking about, um, you know, uh, the issues around restitution and repatriation, but also around that how we come to terms with that colonial past. And he said that, you know, the loss in many ways was so great that Africans have to learn to live with that loss and Europeans have to learn to live with what their ancestors did. Um, and so there's something that, but he, he proposed this project of, 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 of learning to remember together. Um, and I, I found that really kind of compelling. We've used that in the podcast, but that idea of actually learning how to kind of understand those shared histories, but from the different perspectives and to recognize that, you know, there are these different perspectives. And I'm hoping that we can, we can do something towards that kind of learning process through the podcast. Thank you.